from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Elaine Cha. It was a feeling like no other. That's Christopher Dunn talking this morning from the South Central Correctional Center in Licking, Missouri. Over 30 years ago, Dunn was an 18-year-old teen in St. Louis. Another teenager was shot and killed in their neighborhood, and two witnesses testified that Dunn had pulled the trigger. That testimony contributed to his conviction and a life sentence. In the past several years, the witnesses have recanted. That corroborates Dunn's unwavering claim that he did not commit murder. And a judge in 2020 said that no jury would convict him if tried today. Yet Dunn remains in prison. With us to discuss why that is and the legal barriers that now stand between Dunn and freedom, we have Kent Gibson, an attorney based in Kansas City, who spent years representing Dunn and others fighting their convictions in court. Thank you for joining us, Kent. Thank you for having me. Kent, give us some background on the murder that led to Christopher Dunn's life sentence. This was the killing of 15-year-old Rico Rogers, who was fatally shot in the Wells Goodfellow neighborhood of St. Louis the night of May 19, 1990. What evidence did prosecutors bring to prove Dunn's guilt? Well, uh, the, the background of the case was as these uh, several young men, uh, all of whom I think were still teenagers, were sitting on a porch late at night, and some shots rang out from an alley, and one of the everybody scattered, but the one young man, uh, Rico Rogers, was fatally shot. Um, and then the, the police arrived, and uh, um, two of the young young guys on the porch subsequently uh, said they could identify Chris Dunn as the shooter, and that was all they had. There was no physical evidence, um, and that was it. The, these, and they, one, I think one of them was 14 at the time, and the, or 15, and the other one was 12 or 13. Yes. So that's in essence, what the evidence was. So it was two young boys' identification of someone, um, someone, and for for something that occurred at nighttime, as you've noted. And we've also noted that the key evidence against Christopher Dunn has basically fallen apart in the past few years, and much of that has to do with those two witnesses at the trial in '91. Um, And as you said, one was 12 years old and the other was 14. Both have recanted their testimonies. How did that affect this case? Well, I mean, uh, obviously when you have a case that's fairly tenuous to begin with and the the only evidence is discredited, you have a very strong case that you're innocent. And there's a... uh, 20-year-old Missouri Supreme Court case that held that if you have clear and convincing evidence of innocence, you can obtain a new trial by way of filing a state habeas corpus petition, even after you've exhausted your normal appeals, which he had long since done. So so that's what we uh, did. We initially filed it in the circuit court of Texas County, which is where the Licking Prison is located, we were granted a hearing, uh, presented the evidence, and the uh, 
judge who heard the evidence uh, found that, that in his view the we met the test for showing that he was innocent, but he couldn't do anything about it because there was a a decision in, in a case called Lincoln from the Court of Appeals in Kansas City that said that uh, the Amrine decision, which was the case I was alluding to, was a was a death penalty case, and that it only the in it, you can only receive a new trial by showing you're innocent only if you're on death row. Since Chris didn't get the death penalty, he was out of luck. Right. So then that 2020 uh, ruling that was issued by Judge William Hickel, Hickel did explain that he did not believe that any jury would now convict Dunn. And you've just talked about the death penalty, and this is in no way meant to make light of Christopher Dunn's situation. But given that context and the current challenges, I mean, might Christopher be better off had he been sentenced to death? Would that have, would that make his case somehow better or stronger? Well, I mean, uh, yeah. if, he'd, if he'd have gotten the death penalty, he would have probably been executed before the before the this evidence came to light. So mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know if I can assess that, but if this would have come to light before before he was executed, I think uh, the result would have been different, I think. But oh. but on the other hand, if he'd have been on death row, he wouldn't have gotten a hearing in the circuit court because this, you've got to file all death penalty cases where you file a, a state habeas directly in the Supreme Court. So mm. so it, it's, there's a lot of uh, wild cards there that I can't but if he would have been under a sentence of death and still alive when we had our hearing in front of Hickel, uh, uh, which wouldn't have happened because he wouldn't have been given a hearing, it, it would have. Uh, um, it, yeah, it's a it's a it's a perverse thing. But he, he would have, he would have been executed probably before this this evidence ever came to light. Right before the the recanting of that testimony. Can, is it odd or even anomalous that Missouri law takes such a stance on the concept and definition of innocence? I I don't think any I don't know of any other state or any that 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 says I mean it's obviously I I guess it's not worse to be executed if you're innocent than just to be imprisoned although the a strong argument could be made, and I've actually had clients who tell me they'd rather be executed than spend the rest of their life in prison and do life without parole. But right. in any event, it's a it's a manifest injustice if anybody does a week in jail if they're innocent. You know, it's, sure. um, and that's sort of the language they used in the Amrine decision that uh, it's a manifest injustice to mm-hmm. keep a guy someone in prison if there's clear and convincing evidence that they're innocent. So basically justice, injustice that you're seeing in in flesh, in human experience. Now, while evidence for Dunn's freedom is new, the fight is not. We're also joined today by Kira Dunn, the wife of Christopher Dunn, who has spent more than two decades advocating for her now husband's release. Kira, welcome to the show. Hello, Elaine. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you first became interested in Christopher's case in 1999 while writing about it for a criminal justice reform website. 
Now, what was it that first drew you to this case? Well, at the beginning, to be fair, I was assigned to the case. Um, But what made it different than other cases I wrote about was how compelling the difference between the witnesses' police testimony versus what they said in court. The police interviews, of course, that were transcribed um, and did not align at all with what the witnesses said, but by the time they got to court, um, by then their stories miraculously matched. That was my first clue. And from there, I uh, learned more about the case, spoke with Chris's prior attorneys, and yeah, I was convinced pretty early on that he was definitely innocent. Was there anything else that contributed to your your conviction that he had not done the crime he was convicted of? Well, he uh, Chris is the person who will tell you the truth, good, bad, or ugly. And uh, I saw that early on. I also saw that his case wasn't dissimilar to other cases I'd seen where there was sort of a rush to judgment when it came to getting a suspect and um, running them through the system. I mean, Chris was convicted in under 45 minutes of jury deliberation. Hmm. Before he was taken before the jury, he was offered 10 years and then 20 years to plead out. And to my understanding, that's not something a prosecutor would do if they had a very strong case. Can you tell us about the search for the witnesses whose 91-1991, that is, testimony, led to your husband's conviction? Yes, of course. So the first witness recanted via affidavit in 2005. That was something, you know, he had come forward on his own. Chris was so surprised when he heard that this man um, wanted to recant and once that affidavit was provided, our attorney at the time said, you know, that's great, but we really need both to get anywhere. So we really started in, in earnest searching for the second one. He had a very common name, and it took us 10 years. Hmm. Um, I, you know, being based in California at the time, um, had uh, spoken with a ex-police officer I worked with about the case, and he uh went ahead and followed up on a lead that we'd gotten from our St. Louis investigator that there might be a match in California to some relatives of the second witness. Turned out the witness had a record out here and that um, coworker of mine advised me to regularly check the jail logs because he might get you know caught up again. And so I started to do so. And then one Sunday morning, I'm sitting at the table having coffee and he popped up, right birth date, right name. And I was, you know, over, you know, so excited, but I had to make sure it was the right person. So we sent our investigator down and sure enough, it was. He he said, I remember it like it was yesterday and um, told us what had happened, you know, that they, nobody could have really seen who did the shooting because it was so dark and the shots just came out. And as Kent said, you know, they scattered, they ran. We're speaking with Kara Dunn, who's the wife of Christopher Dunn, who spent more than two decades advocating, or I'm sorry, who has spent more than three decades now in prison serving a life sentence for a murder that he did not commit, as well as Kent Gibson, an attorney based in Kansas City, who has been working with Dunn for many years, as well as others who are fighting convictions in court. Kara, was it difficult to convince the two witnesses to recant? 
Oh, not at all. Um, as for the first one, you know, I wasn't involved. I found out not long after Chris found out that this man was doing this on his own. Um, the, for the second one, from what our investigator told us, it was, you know, as soon as he told our witness why he was there, he said, oh, yeah, I remember it like it was yesterday. No, we couldn't see anything. Um, we decided to say this. And he was shocked that Chris was still in prison for that. He he had left the state not long after that and had no idea what had transpired in the years since. We're going to go back to May 2018, which is when you sat in a Missouri court and watched the witnesses from Christopher's 1991 trial take the stand and recant their testimony. Also in the room was your husband himself. And earlier today, Producer Danny Wisentowski spoke with Christopher, who described that moment of truth. I knew that I was innocent, but to hear someone finally come forward and admit that they lied on me, how they lied, and how they influenced the other people to say that I was the perpetrator, to hear them say that, to vindicate me, it was a feeling like no other. I can't describe exactly the emotion that came over me. All I know is that I slumped down into the chair, bowed my head, and said to myself, thank you. And one by one, after each witness got up on the stand and started testifying, I sat there and I just knew eventually they were going to free me. I just knew I was going to walk out of jail that day. But when the judge had to give us a continuance and they didn't free me, I started having doubts. And I was going to be returned back to the Department of Correction. But in that moment, I felt like I finally did it. I finally cleared my name. That was Christopher Dunn describing this morning how he felt hearing witnesses recant in court their 1991 testimony that put him in prison to serve a life sentence for murder. Kiria, we just heard your husband describe the moment of that 2018 court hearing. What was it like to witness that moment for the truth to finally come out? Oh, yes. I mean, we were in tears. I was sitting with my in-laws and especially when the first witness described why he'd lied and that he regretted doing so um, and how and he knew how it had impacted Chris's life. I mean, the judge wasn't tearful. He was angry. I remember his face reddening at the time, mm -hmm. um, but we were in tears. Um, we'd gone into that hearing very hopeful, but we really didn't know how it would all play out. And yeah, it was so compelling at the time that um, one court officer turned to the other and said audibly, uh, sh should we call the institution to tell him to get his stuff ready to go? Wow. Yeah, and we really did think that he would walk out of there that day. Um, he, we had long discussed the outfit he would wear. I had that ready. Um, the family was there. Uh, we were so hopeful that day. Even hearing you describe what it was like um, it has me sort of holding my breath. Uh, now, that dramatic 2018 hearing, unfortunately, yes. did not lead to your husband's freedom. And two right. years later, in 2020, Judge Hickel wrote, quote, 
This court does not believe that any jury would now convict Christopher Dunn under these facts, unquote. But under Missouri law, Hickel ruled that the 1991 conviction still stands. The decision was crushing, but today, um, Christopher says he still has hope. Missouri has a way, sadly, in victimizing the citizens, even though the, the citizens themselves, like myself, is not guilty of a crime. But because they choose not to address the matter and want to sweep it up under the rug as if it never occurred, I could have lived with anger, bitterness, despair. I could live with frustration and hate. But it's not going to get me anywhere through life. I understand, sir, that the people are going to have doubt. That's human nature. But it's also in my nature to be free. If I was guilty of this crime, I would have said I was guilty when they offered me 10 years. That was Christopher Dunn speaking this morning by phone from Missouri's South Central Correctional Center in Licking, Missouri. Kent, having both witnesses recant, it wasn't and isn't enough, and Christopher has now exhausted his legal appeal. What is the next step, and how might St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner and her office facilitate that? Well, we've, we've had an application... Um pending in front of her office for quite some time uh, under this law that was enacted uh, in August of 2001 that gives a prosecutor uh, the authority to file a motion in the trial court and give a uh, defendant or a prisoner a hearing if they think either that he is actually innocent or his uh, conviction was tainted by a constitutional violation. Um, We've had a few conversations with various advocates and myself, but it, it's apparent, I think, that she is not going to file any such motion in any other case until the uh, Lamar Johnson case is decided, which uh, hopefully will happen soon. Mm-hmm. And there are some striking similarities between Christopher's case and that of Lamar Johnson. Um, Johnson's case was the subject of a five-day court hearing in which prosecutors argued for his exoneration, which is something that that you've just mentioned uh, about what happened uh, with Lamar Johnson. Now, the ruling in Johnson's case is expected sometime this month. Kent, what are you watching for in that case, and could Christopher be next? I'm hope, hoping he is next in line. Um, I guess uh, how the prosecutor uh, proceeds might depend on the outcome. If Lamar Johnson uh, is exonerated, then um, I think uh, it's hopefully that she'll uh, do the same for other uh, other innocent prisoners because we know from experience and just some of the problems with the criminal justice system in St. Louis that there's he is he's far from the only innocent person that was convicted in St. Louis City the last 30 years or so mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, it's 
than a campaign promise, both of uh, her and Wesley Bell, who was elected in the in the county to remedy miscarriages of justice. And thus far, uh, neither one of them have, have done so, or you, at least not utilize this new statute. Um, it's uh, there's a lot of guys waiting in the wings. Kira, the Missouri justice system has thus far offered little in the way of recognizing your husband's wrongful conviction and sentencing based on the evidence that now exists. What is it that gives you hope that Christopher's case will indeed be heard and his innocence finally affirmed under law? It does give me hope to see um, Circuit Attorney Gardner, you know, being so strong in her support of Lamar Johnson. It also gives me hope that um, our legal team has a petition in front of the United States Supreme Court that we're hoping will be heard. Um, the state of Missouri has been given until February 6th to respond, which I understand is a positive sign that it may be heard by the court, although we know our odds are slim. They hear maybe 1% or 2% of the cases that are they're asked to hear. I'm also given hope by House Bill 360, which has been introduced into the Missouri legislature by Kimberly Ann Collins, um, a Missouri representative, and that would give judges the power that the 2021 law gave prosecutors to correct a wrongful conviction um, that comes before them. And if they see clear and convincing evidence, they would be able to vacate the conviction, order a new trial, you know, it empowers the judges. And if that had been in place when Chris went before that judge in 2018, he would have walked out of that courtroom. Um, we did reach out here um, on the show to sir, the circuit attorney's office to ask about Christopher Dunn's case, your husband's case, and the status of the Lamar Johnson decision, decision, and that is not something that we have heard back about. Um, in in the time between now and when the decision is made, um, is there something, Kira, that you and uh, that you and Christopher are doing to keep your spirits up? Well, we try to turn our anxiety and the ups and downs that come with um, waiting um, into action. So we are reaching out uh, on a daily basis to any uh, people we think could help us uh, spread the word and uh, increase the chances that the nation becomes aware of the fact that in Missouri, and I think you asked Kent this, is Missouri the only state that has this type of law and precedent? Yes, it is. To our knowledge, it is. Mm. Um, and innocence and guilt should matter in the United States. Yes. yes. Kara Dunn is the wife of Christopher Dunn, a Missouri man who has spent over 30 years serving a life sentence for a 1990 murder he did not commit. Kent Gibson is an attorney based in Kansas City. He spent years representing Dunn and others fighting convictions in court. They spoke with us about Christopher Dunn's evidence-based quest for exoneration and the legal barriers he faces. Thanks to you both. Thank you so much, Elaine, for having us. Thank you. This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Doerr. 
Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com.